0: Travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 48 for April Fool's Day, 2007, with your host, Tom Olszak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at In this episode, we have two feature topics. Data encryption is not a security panacea, and the problem with NetBIOS. The featured material is taken from my weekly contributions to TechRepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. And now, let's take a look at last week's security news. As RFID use grows, so do concerns about authentication and encryption to protect sensitive information. The primary issues are how the low power consumption and related processing power of wireless RFID sensor nodes. Cryptographic algorithms are typically designed to run on high-performance systems, 32 or 64-bit processors. This is quite a difference from the 4 or 8-bit processors used in RFID solutions. Further, power not used by the processor is needed for the RF transceiver embedded in the sensor. If the length or number of messages exchanged between the tag and the sensor increases, additional scarce power will be consumed. Finally, as authentication encryption processing power needs increase, there is less power available for the intended function of the device. Caps, Gobetz, and Sunar wrote in the February 2007 issue of Computer that wireless sensor hardware developed specifically for radios combines a low data rate, low power consumption, and the ability to interface directly with low-power controllers. With these constraints, is it even possible to provide adequate security for RFID networks? Well, the answer is maybe. On March 12, 2007, SecureRF announced the pending publication of their method of providing authentication and encryption on RFID devices. The details of how the new technology works appears in a peer-reviewed article entitled Key Agreement, The Algebraic Eraser in Lightweight Cryptography in Volume 418 of the American Mathematical Society's Contemporary Mathematics Series. According to SecureRF, the technology behind their authentication encryption solution is the Algebraic Eraser. The Algebraic Eraser supports public and private key protocols on passive, passive passive-active, and active RFID tags. It does this using a revolutionary approach that increases processing requirements as the size of the key increases. This provides for the possibility of high-speed, low-power encryption. SecureRF's first secure RFID tag, the LIME tag, will be released in March 2007. The new tag is EPC Global Gen 2 compliant. It remains to be seen how this might affect the security of future wireless RFID networks. Our next news item has to do with something called Carter IM, Secure Communication for Cybercriminals. In the past several years, U.S. law enforcement has expanded its internet monitoring efforts. This is especially true of the FBI, which continuously monitors for illegal communication and exchange of illegal or stolen property over the internet. Is it any surprise that cybercriminals have potentially found a way around law enforcement surveillance? Carter IM is a new instant messaging solution for criminal groups that encrypts data so that it isn't readable by law enforcement. In a presentation at the International E-Crime Congress in London, RSA's Andrew Maloney commented that criminals are developing their own technology to facilitate secure communication. This communication includes selling stolen identities and intellectual property to interested buyers. U.S. law enforcement will find it difficult to crack down on this new method of information exchange. The servers that control Carter IM appear to be hosted offshore. Luckily, Carter IM requires a special client that isn't easily obtained. It looks like only special people are allowed to access it. Next, banker trojans. According to Panda Labs, banker trojans are the fastest growing trojan category with 20% of all trojans. This is even more significant when you consider that 53.6% of, mal- of malware detected by Panda Labs in 2006 were Trojans. Banker Trojans, designed to steal financial information enter- entered into browser-based online forms, are the cyber criminals' answer to the crackdown on key logging. In addition to snatching form input, Banker Trojans are also designed to trick users into visiting websites designed to look authentic. Once there, users are prompted for personal information to affect identity theft. And in our final news piece, Cisco's network access control might be broken. German security and penetration testing company ERNW GmbH announced on Friday that it had exploited two flaws in Cisco's NAC security solution. The announcement, made at Black Hat Europe on Friday, included a tool called NAC credential spoofing. The first flaw is a client's inability to effectively authenticate with the ACS server. The second flaw has to do with how the client reports its health. There's no way to verify that the policy compliance report provided by the client isn't faked in some way. It shouldn't be a surprise that vulnerabilities were found in NAC. Like all emerging technologies, there's very little chance that the developers will get it right the first time. Even after the technology matures, there can never be guarantees that it will p- provide 100% network access protection. Anytime human design and development is involved, there will be mistakes. As you probably heard or read a thousand times, only layered security, with each layer helping to strengthen the others, can provide the level of protection necessary to adequately protect your information assets. Now well, that's it for my commentary on the news, and now on to our featured topics, The first one is, uh, data encryption is not a security panacea. Data encryption is getting a lot of press these days. It seems like a host of businesses are running to encryption vendors to see how fast they can scramble their sensitive information in the face of well-publicized data breaches. Much of this excitement, or hysteria, is fueled by journalists and bloggers who frequently portray data encryption as some kind of security panacea. Security and IT managers need to step back and take a more objective look at how encryption fits into an overall set of data security solutions that provide practical, immediate, and efficient protection. TJX appears to have skipped that step. According to a recent article at physorg.com, there are two primary reasons why data encryption didn't work for the giant retailer, even though data at rest was encrypted. First, Credit card approval information was exchanged unencrypted with card approval processors. Second, the attack the attacker had obtained the tools and information necessary to retrieve data that was encrypted. This includes keys. In other words, it appears that interfaces over which sensitive data flowed were not protected and encryption in, encryption key management was lax. Encrypting all data at rest or in transit might sound like a good idea, but it usually requires a major infrastructure overhaul for many organizations. Implementation of encryption can mandate taking costly steps to keep performance at reasonable levels. Further, there's the issue of key management. Key management is a huge risk if an organization hasn't sufficiently focused on security fundamentals, including segmenting the network to provide restricted access to sensitive systems, encrypting all data passing out of restricted data segments, ensuring database server security best practices are implemented including replacing default passwords with strong passwords, continuously monitoring direct database access activities, and using a single account to provide application access to the database. The database should never be configured to allow all application users except for database administrators to have direct read or write access outside of the application. Next, you need to enforce Lee's privilege when designing user and system access controls, and finally, continuously monitor the movement of sensitive data within the confines of the internal network, including passing to and from mobile storage devices. This list is just a start. There are many more steps that can be taken to protect data before an organization aggressively pursues an enterprise encryption solution. I'm not saying that encryption isn't useful. What I am saying, is that it's just one control out of a host of others that must be working effectively to truly secure information assets. Now to our final feature, the problem with NetBIOS. During the past week, our engineering team and I have been having a discussion about what to do about a problem involving the use of Microsoft SMS to patch laptops connected via SSL VPN. The issue is the apparent requirement that we open NetBIOS ports through the SSL VPN device so SMS can communicate with its client side agents. Repeated discussions with Microsoft haven't turned up any alternatives. So what's the problem? Why not allow NetBIOS traffic to and from the internet? Let's start with with an examination of what NetBIOS actually is. It's a transport protocol that Microsoft Windows systems use to share resources. For example, if a PC running Windows wants to connect to and access a share on a file server, it probably uses NetBIOS. There have been some changes in recent days, however, that allow this connection without it. SMB, the method used to access file and printer shares, can also run independently of NetBIOS over TCP ports 139 and 445. Both approaches, however, tend to increase the attack surface of a network. The ports that we'd have to open to the Internet are UDP-137, UDP-138, and TCP-139 to allow NetBIOS traffic. Unfortunately, the most popular attacker target is NetBIOS and against these ports. I'm going to use the vulnerabilities associated with port 139 to demonstrate how an attacker can use NetBIOS, or at least the open port for NetBIOS, to plan an attack and execute an attack against an organization's network. Once an attacker discovers an active port 139 on a device, he can run NBSTAT to begin the very important first step of an attack, footprinting. With the NBSTAT command, he can obtain some or all of the following information. Computer name, contents of the remote name cache including IP addresses, a list of local NetBIOS names a list of names resolved by broadcast or via WINS, and contents of the session table with the destination IP addresses. With this information, the attacker has information about the OS, services, and major applications running on the system. He also has private IP addresses that the LAN, WAN, and security engineers have tried hard to hide behind NAT. And that's not all. The lists provided by running NBSTAT also include user IDs. If null sessions are allowed against IPC, it isn't difficult to take the next step and connect to the target device. This connection provides a list of all available shares. So how do you defend against external NetBIOS connections? If NetBIOS has to be allowed, the first step is to ensure that only a very small number of devices are accessible. As you'll see, leaving your network open to external NetBIOS traffic significantly increases the complexity of system hardening. Complexity is the enemy of system assurance. Next, ensure that the exposed systems are hardened by disabling the system's ability to support null sessions, defining very strong passwords for the local administrator accounts, defining very strong passwords for shares, and that's assuming you absolutely have to have shares on exposed systems, keeping the guest account disabled, under no circumstances allowing access to the root of a hard drive via a share, Under no circumstances sharing the Windows or WinNT directories or any directory located beneath them. And I added one more and that is crossing your fingers. So it's possible to open the perimeter to net BIOS traffic. Possible, but not very smart. In my opinion, the only systems that should be exposed to this type of traffic should be locked down tight. Further, the more systems exposed, the greater the chance that something will be missed. Allowing an attacker to gain a foothold. And I'm not alone in coming to this conclusion. In an article titled A Quantitative Study of Firewall Configuration, configuration Errors, Avishai Wool of Tel Aviv University lists leaving the NetBIOS service open on the perimeter as number 8 in his list of the top 12 firewall configuration errors. Wool wrote These frequently attacked services are very insecure. Allowing any NetBIOS service to cross the firewall in any direction is an error. And let's not omit Microsoft's position on this. The following is from Microsoft's Threats and Countermeasures Guide. Quote, to help secure an exposed system, you can greatly reduce its attack surface if you disable service mes- Server Message Block, or SMB, and NetBIOS over TCP IP. It will be difficult to manage servers that operate under this configuration, and they will be unable to access folders shared on the network. However, these measures effectively protect the server from compromise through the SMB and NetBIOS protocols. Therefore, you should disable SMB and NetBIOS over TCP/IP for network connections on servers that are accessible from the internet." End quote. Well, this is okay for servers in the DMZ, but we would face some network and access functionality issues if we took this step for our internal systems. So, is it okay to open up the perimeter to NetBIOS traffic so SMS can access our remote remote systems? Under the circumstances, I think I'll stick to my original position. No way. Well, that's it for this week. I hope I was able to help you make your network just a little bit more secure. And until next week... Be t- careful what you clip.